Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season 3 of Roar Lions Radio. I'm your host, Bill DeFilippo, and for the next few episodes, I don't have a co-host. Instead, we decided to kick things off by looking at the teams on Penn State's 2018 schedule. We have a few friends at the site coming on who cover, follow, or are fans of these teams that could speak with a little more authority than we can. The first episode will be the first half of the Nittany Lions schedule, while the second episode will discuss the team's final six games. Today, we couldn't get someone out to talk App State, Kent State is still up in the air, but we'll be talking to people who can discuss Pitt, Illinois, Ohio State, and Michigan State. I'm getting fired up for football. I hope you're getting fired up for football, and I hope this gets you all a little more excited for the season ahead. It should be a fun one, and I think we all expect this to be a potentially really special year in Happy Valley. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right, so as I mentioned in the intro, we couldn't find anyone for Appalachian State. We had to dive right in. Uh, to pit football, and to do that, we decided to go out. We decided to get a veteran of the Penn State blogosphere because y'all knew there was no way I was going to get someone who actually went to pit uh, to talk to me on this. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, we got Adam Bittner here. Adam, what's going on, man? Hey, Bill. Great to talk to you. It's Yeah, it's uh, when I was going through the list of people that we could talk to about pit, like, my one thing was I needed someone who, like, if this episode gets playfully condescending towards Pitt's football program, like they go, yeah, instead of getting uh, really mad. So I'm glad we're able to get you on here, buddy. How's uh, how are things going down in Pittsburgh this uh, this summer as we're getting ready for year four of the Pat Narduzzi era? Oh, they're doing everything's great. You know, everyone's all excited about the Pirates March to 85 wins. So, <laughs> um, you know, everybody's everybody's excited for that and then getting football season started. Yeah, and I, when it comes to pit football, what's kind of the vibe around the team as we enter, again, year four of Pat Narduzzi after last year being, really being a year where they took a step back, which is something that didn't really happen during the first two years of his tenure? I think, you know, there, you have to take it in chunks. I think, the, especially that upset of Miami in the last game last year, kind of set different segments of the pit fan base off on on different levels of expectations. I think you have a group of true believers who who really think that this team's ready to take the next step. Um, then I think you have probably a group of, of more cautious optimism that, that saw what Kenny Pickett did and saw what that team did against, you know, a pretty good Miami bunch last year. Um, you know, and they hope they can step, take a step forward. But I think they also see that there's there's flaws in this program and, and there's a lot of inexperience in some key spots, especially on that defense. Um, that they're going to have to resolve against a pretty tough schedule um, to improve on that 5-7 and seven record. Yeah, and one thing that kind of interests me about this Pitt team is that it seems like, at least the administration, and like you said, there is the quote-unquote true believers out there, they really seem to believe that Pat Narduzzi is the guy. Uh, last year, they, like you mentioned, they had that big win uh, over Miami, but otherwise it was kind of a limp year for them. Wins over Youngstown State, over Rice, over Duke, and over UVA, and then losses to Penn State, Oklahoma State, Georgia Tech, uh, Syracuse, NC State, North Carolina, and Virginia Tech. So, like, what is kind of the expectation around the program as we get into this fourth year? I think, I think, um, Eight wins really is, is where Pitt fans tend to, to seem to be happy. Um, you know, if they can get north of that someday, then then obviously they'd be thrilled. But, um, you know, especially against this schedule, I think, 
you know, they're definitely looking to go to a bowl game this year. Um, yeah, I think the interesting thing is is what those big wins, how they shape the perception, um, you know, in a town that, and this this is often used as an excuse by a lot of Pitt fans that there's a lot else going on in this town um, between the Steelers <laughs> and the Pirates and the Penguins and all that. Um, but those big wins do capture attention, and and that tends to be what a lot of people remember. They don't tend to remember the terrible games. For example, the week before they um, they beat Miami, they lost to North Carolina, which was one and eight. And I think that was kind of the low point. And at that point, there were legitimate conversations about should Pat Narduzzi be fired. Um, but, you know, you stack on another win against the top five team like he did against Penn State, like he did it against Clemson the year before. Um, and those tend to be the things that stick in people's memories. Um, so it, sometimes the, the discussion can be dictated by being in season and not and whether there were big wins or not. Um, you know, it's 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 very much like a, a shiny objects type of a situation with them. Um, so, you know, I think that, that they're going to need some big wins this year if they're not going to win a ton of games um, to keep that momentum going in terms of, of Pat Narduzzi's perception in this town. And they have the opportunity to pick up one hell of a win uh, during week two, Penn State road night game, uh, nationally broadcast at Heinz Field. Going to be a raucous environment. It's going to be, it, it, it's going to be one of those games where even if Penn State should win, it's going to be a little bit tricky because of you know road night game against your rival. I, I do want to ask one last question before we kind of dive into uh, this Pitt team specifically. Pitt, Pitt and Penn State, you know, they're rivals, and in this rivalry, it seems that Penn State kind of has a bit of a rocket strapped onto its back. Uh, as it's becoming one of those elite programs in college football again, is there an expectation in Pitt that while that's happening, that success kind of has to be replicated? Or is it one of those things where we understand it's going to be a process, we're going to take it slow. If Penn State gets to be the national title contender, that's fine as long as we get there eventually. Or do you think patience is... A point's going to come where patience is going to run thin if Penn State keeps racking up these 10-win seasons and uh, these New Year's Six Bowl appearances. I think, you know, there's, there's again, the Pitt fan base is kind of divided into these, these you know, crazies who really do think that their, their program should be keeping up with Penn State or Ohio State or whoever. And then I think you have these people that understand it's going to be more of a process. And, um, you know, I always like to, to make the comparison to those Gary Pinkle Missouri teams where... Um, you know, they didn't have a ton of, of great recruits. They didn't have a great natural recruiting base as Western Pennsylvania has kind of dried up and supplying those types of players um, to both Pitt and Penn State and West Virginia. There's just not enough of them around here. So I think, you know, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of Pitt fans are a little more tuned into the program every day. Um, they see them going into recruiting Florida, um, recruiting some of these traditional ACC territories, getting those three maybe low four-star kind of guys who, um, you know, maybe a program like Penn State's not going to look at, but that you can plug into a five-year system like Pat Narduzzi's. They can mature into to some competent players. And maybe you get a team that can compete, um, can be in the top ten um, for a little while, can mature into that. Um, I don't think anybody expects that to happen overnight. And I don't I don't know if, if a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the people who are true, you know, pay attention to Pitt all year round, don't just pay attention to them during football season. I'm not sure those people are expecting them to be tracking right next to Penn State. I think they just want to see some modest improvement and and hopefully get to that point where 
you you have the guys and um, who know they're solid football players. They may not be great talents, but they fit in the system well. They know what they're supposed to do and they can execute. And I think that's that's their expectation. As long as they're taking steps in that direction, um, you know, I think there will be a core segment of the fan base that's happy. And I think that's what you're seeing. You know, when when Narduzzi got that extension. Um, administration is finally starting to see things that way. And in the past, they've they've had a quick, quick trigger. I think famously Dave Wanstad is, is probably the best example, uh, but even Walt Harris before him. You know, those were guys that were making those incremental progresses. They were getting pit to a point where they could, you know, compete in the top 25 and maybe if they have a great season finish in the top 10. Um, but people got impatient and those guys got canned. I think Narduzzi's going to get more time than those guys did um, if for no other reason than he has a long contract at this point. And looking at this season, uh, looking, we'll start in the offensive side of the ball. Uh, the good news for Pitt fans is between Darren Hall and Quadri Olson, they have two guys. Two guys were veterans at toting the rock. Uh, Hall, last season, 628 yards on the ground, averaged about five yards a carry, nine touchdowns. Olson is, of course, just this battering ram of a running back who they're going to give it to him up the middle. He's going to get through arm tackles, do all that stuff. But having said that, it seems like so much of Pitt's success is going to come down to who is able to win this quarterback battle between Kenny Pickett and Ricky Town. Will Pitt, what does Pitt expect to have enough of an air presence that it's able to let those two guys on the ground run? And if not, is this going to be one of those teams that's going to just run the ball five million times and hope for the best? Well, you know, I think if if they have a passing game, it's it's going to depend on the receiver stepping up more so than whoever's at quarterback. Um, I think you know most of the Pitt fan base is on the side of, of Kenny Pickett, given how he performed against Miami last year. But um, you know, I, I think you know even thinking back to that Pitt Penn State game last year in Happy Valley, um, those receivers that Pitt had were were pretty much garbage, and, and a couple of them are gone now, especially Jester Wea, who was the leading receiver. Um, you know, they were not they were not good enough going up against the type of competition that Pitt, especially is going to be on Pitt's schedule this year. Um, so I think you're going to need to see receivers uh, step up. Um, Ra Ra Lopes is, is a guy that, that performed well, you know, kind of in that slot, like lower down the depth chart position, but he's going to have to, you know, step into a bigger role this year. And then you're going to have to see other guys emerge. So, um, you know, I think regardless of who's a quarterback, it's, it's going to be on the receivers to make this passing game work. And, Kind of to go back to the running game for one second. I think when you think of Pitt football, uh, you think of a team that's going to be able to run the ball. You're going to think of a team that has the whole bunch of hog mollies up front. And Pitt's offensive line left to right, redshirt senior, redshirt senior, redshirt sophomore, redshirt senior, redshirt senior. Is the offensive line, as it's heading into this season, expected to be what Pitt football is going to hang its hat on as it has in year past? Yeah, I think it's it's not quite the same as um, you know a couple years ago when when Penn State went into you know Heinz Field and they kind of got bowled over by a veteran pit offensive line because those guys had a ton of experience up front and they had um, you know obviously James Conner in the back and and um, Quadri Henderson running those sweeps on the edges and um, you know I, I think there's hope that this offensive line can develop into that I don't know if it's as proven as as that group was going into that season. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how, you know, some of these older guys who have been around the program, but haven't necessarily been in games, how they step into, into those roles. Um, and if they can, you know, jump into game speed quickly. Other side of the football, uh, when you're talking about a Pat Narduzzi coach team, you're expecting that defense to be able to, uh, not only be 
good. You're expecting that defense to be fast, physical, aggressive, and to force opponents into making mistakes. Uh, who are the guys on Pitt's defense who need to take some kind of a step forward, who have to step up to make it so when Pitt goes for those super aggressive uh, big plays that Pat Narduzzi wants out of its defense, it's going to make those plays happen and it's not going to lead to you know a bunch of 40 and 50 yard touchdowns allowed to the opposing team. I think you're gonna you're gonna want to look at Demar Hamlin, who I think pretty famously spurned uh, Penn State to go to Pitt. He's from Central Catholic, um, you know, right there in Oakland. So you know he's he's been in that Pitt environment for a long time. Um, he's dealt with some injuries for a couple of years, but now with Jordan Whitehead gone, it's it's his time to kind of step up, um, you know, and, and and be that ball hawking safety that um, Whitehead was and, and allowed them, um, you know, to do some things. I think you're gonna look at Paris Ford at corner. He's another one who is, you know, one of the high, highly regarded recruits. Also spurned Penn State. Um, you know, the whole the whole pit defense relies on those corners being able to um, lock down so that the safeties and the linebackers can can um, kind of do that work in front of them. So I think, you know, as as it has been the case every year with pit football, if they can if they can get locked down on those edges, um, then I think you know they have the depth and the talent in the middle. Um, to kind of make some things happen, but um, they'll have to prove it first. There's a lot of guys. There's a lot of guys who haven't. I mean, even Hamlin and Paris Ford, they haven't played a lot. Um, there's a lot of hope for them, but they haven't really uh, been through the wars or anything. So they're going to have to prove uh, that they can do those things for for this defense to work. And you mentioned uh, depth and talent in the front seven, uh, kind of similar to the, uh, you know, as we're talking about the secondary. When you think of Pitt's football team. You're think or not Pitt's football team necessarily, but Pat Narduzzi's football team. You're thinking fast. You're thinking aggressive. You're thinking they're going to get into backfields. You're thinking they're going to keep things in front of them. Who are the guys in the front seven who, who if things go right for Pitt, we're going to be pointing to them as the all ACC type dudes? Well, I think um, the one that really jumps out to me is Quentin Morginis. He missed all of last season, um, but he's he's back in the middle. So. Uh, I think he's the guy you, you really want to watch. Um, you know, they have some other good guys on that defensive line, but but um, you know they've kind of been established. Virginis uh, is kind of that guy that you're you're hoping um, if your pit steps up and and comes back strong. And kind of final uh, questions here: looking at the best case scenario for pit football and the worst case scenario for pit football. Can you walk me through the two of those? And, and of course, you know, the best case scenario for every team is a national title. Worst case scenario is you lose every game by 500 points. What are the realistic best and worst case scenarios for Pitt this season? And who are the players that are kind of going to, on both sides of the ball, dictate whether or not those scenarios happen? Um, well, I think, you know, if, you, if you're looking at the schedule, there's Notre Dame, there's Central Florida, um, and there's Penn State in the non-conference. So I think you need to get at least one of those. Um, to build some kind of momentum um, going into the ACC schedule. And then I think, um, you know, those games against Virginia Tech and Miami, um, those divisional opponents, they're just they're, they're huge for this program because those programs are not, you know, at least as far as I perceive them, be, to be leaps and bounds better than Pitt. There's really no – there hasn't been a runaway team in, in the division um, for years. And I think, you know, if you're, if you're hoping for a best-case scenario for Pitt, it's – 
It's maybe win one of those games against one of those right teams, hope for an upset somewhere, and then maybe you can slip into that ACC championship game just because of the mediocrity of your division. Um, you know, and like I said, I, I would be looking at the, at the Pitt secondary and, and guys like Hamlin and, and Ford to step up um, on defense and, and um, on offense. It really, I think, how dangerous they're going to be comes down to the receivers and whether they can um, give guys like Hall and Allison the room to run um, that they didn't necessarily have last year, even though they, they looked really solid at times. Um, you know, obviously Pitt is a is a program that tends to produce running backs almost out of nowhere at times. Um, even despite tons of coaching changes, it always seems like, you know, some guy that you haven't heard of steps up and becomes a force at that position. Um, but I think to be effective, they're going to need to find ways to replace Henderson and Wea, who weren't necessarily great receivers to begin with. And then what is the scenario where, uh, I won't say Pat Narduzzi gets fired, because I, with the commitment and, like you said, the patience that the athletic department at Pitt seems to be uh, priding itself on right now, I don't think he gets fired, uh, barring, you know, a winless season, which, you know, has losses to, like, Albany and Duke and Syracuse in there. But what's the scenario where next season becomes kind of put up or shut up for him? I think if you if 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 there's no big wins and this team misses a bowl game again, or you know maybe goes six and six and goes goes to a bad bowl game and loses that bowl game, finishes with a losing record despite making the postseason. I think um, I don't I don't think Pat Nard like you said I don't think this is this is the year that Pat Narduzzi's you know head is on the chopping block. But um, you know there were murmurs about it after that North Carolina loss last year, and I think. If you have a, a downer end to the season and you don't have any big wins to fall back on, um, then I think those murmurs will start to get a lot louder. I am a little bit upset with you, though, because when I said what's the best case scenario, I was expecting a 1-11 season with a win over Penn State. But otherwise, uh, Adam Bittner, let people know where they can find you. If you have anything you want to plug uh, coming down the pipeline, by all means, get it out there. Oh, hey, I, um, you know, you can find my stuff at post-gazette, post-gazette.com. Um, feel free to throw a subscription our way. Um, and then I am on Twitter at Fujimaster24. You can buckle up for some uh, excellent tweets. Yes, uh, Adam Bittner, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Next up, we're uh, still a little bit up in the air. We're either going to be talking to someone from Kent State or talking to someone from Illinois. But yeah, uh, stick to it right there. And one last time, Adam, thanks for coming on, buddy. Right, it's time to get into the Big Ten portion of Penn State's schedule. This year, it starts off kind of weird in that the Nittany Lions start Big Ten play on the road on a Friday night in Champaign against Illinois. Uh, Fighting Illini are a very interesting football team this year uh, in that the, I, I don't think anyone in Happy Valley knows terribly much about them, so to learn a little bit more, we went out and got our pal Brandon Burkhead from the Champaign Room, one of my favorite named SB Nation sites. Brandon, how you doing, man? Doing great. How are you doing today? Not too bad, and we were speaking a little bit before we started this, but I'm excited to talk about Illinois because like, this is a chance for me to learn a bit about them because it just hasn't seemed like there is a lot of hype around this program. It seems nope. like a program that's kind of stagnant <laughs> right now. It, it, you you just answered the question, but <laughs> is that something that is just because we are in uh, Happy Valley and you know Illinois is out in uh, Champaign and the Big Ten West, or is this really a program that seems like it's kind of uh, stuck in neutral? Well, when you lose 
all your Big Ten games last year and the year before, you only won one Big Ten game. You're just not relevant in the conversation of any Big Ten programs or even nationally. It's just when you lose so much, you kind of exit the conversation. And locally, the team is even starting to lose just with its core fan base just because of all the losing that's happened over the years and over the decade. 2010s have not been nice to the Illini faithful that they're starting to kind of lose hope and just kind of becoming a lot more lethargic towards the program and just not that involved and engaged. But there's still a huge portion that are and still there believing, just like every college fan base. But this is a team that really needs to put something together pretty soon or just start risking becoming a Kansas football. And that's something we definitely wow, okay. don't want to happen. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that comparison to pop up, but uh, yeah, I... I think everyone knows that uh, Illinois, the situation is getting kind of close to dire out there, but I don't think uh, unless you're following that team specifically, you're expecting names like Kansas to be thrown out. So uh, the, the obvious answer to this is what need to what needs to happen for them to start generating a bit more hype is to win. But like, how do those wins come? Where do those wins uh, come from for Illinois, and how do they get to the point where they're winning those football games and becoming a little bit more relevant again? Yeah, and as you said, like it's starting to get dire. I'd say it is already dire. I'd say last year was kind of the rock bottom for what Illinois could be. Yeah, they won their two out conference games, but one of them was a very much a struggle last second win over Ball State, who didn't win a MAC game that season, and then the, losing every game in the Big Ten. Only one of them was sort of even close against Minnesota. That You can't get much worse than what that was. <laughs> but things should start to improve this year. They played a record number of freshmen last year. 15 true freshmen started over the course of the year. 22 true freshmen played. It was a huge youth movement. And so this year, just by that, they should be better. Just freshmen are now sophomores. You're in... Moving on in year three of the Lovey Smith defensive system, that should help. They are bringing in a new offensive coordinator, though, in Rod Smith. Rod Smith coached under Rich Rodriguez from his days at West Virginia and then Michigan and Arizona. And he was also a quarterback for him way back in the day. So Rod Smith comes from that system. It's a very fast, up-tempo system, as you know, run the ball a lot, spread it out. And that does fit Illinois' personnel well, but... The question is, do you have the quarterback to do it? Cam Thomas was a true freshman last year, played, but struggled a bit, especially with passing. But he does have a lot of speed. That's a lot positive. And then A.J. Bush is a transfer coming in for Virginia Tech, who also was at Nebraska for two years. And he's coming as a grad transfer, immediately eligible. He's only thrown 11 collegiate passes, though, but looks to be the leader in the clubhouse right now to take over the starting job, at least to start the season. And just with those quarterback questions, the new offense coordinator, you'd expect there to be some struggles on offense, but still it should be a better offense because Illinois last year was one of the worst offenses you could ever see in college football. The quarterback play, I cannot – just so Cam Thomas we already talked about was a true freshman played and struggled like a lot of true freshman will. The other two quarterbacks, Jeff George Jr. transferred to Michigan as a walk-on. And Chase Crouch retired from football because of injuries. So that's what Illinois had last year. But this year should improve. 
But this team is still so young. Yes, they're not freshmen, but they're still sophomores. And they're young on defense and offense. So the whole question of can you win this year, I'm just not sure that they have the talent and the experience yet to do that. Well, uh, we're going to talk about the offense in a second. We're going to talk about one guy who has plenty of experience when we get there. But before we get that, you to that, you mentioned Lovey Smith. Uh, I find him very interesting. Uh, I think ev- I had the same reaction that everyone did when he got hired, which was I just kind of like turn my head like dogs do when you make a noise that they haven't heard before. Um, I, <laughs> I, what is kind of his job security like is he on a hot seat right now uh or is it a situation where everyone knows it's going to be a, a, a bit of a process before illinois gets to a point of national relevance again and lovey has time to do what he needs to do yeah so athletic director josh whitman is fully committed to this rebuild I don't think Lovey Smith would have played as many freshmen as he did last year, just a complete teardown of the roster in year two of his reign, if he didn't feel that he had the job security confidence. And I think unless Lovey Smith somehow loses one of the first two games, either to Western Illinois or Kent State, on the way to a 1-11 or 0-12 season, unless that happens, he's not going to be fired. It's just I think this... I think it helps to put a little bit of context of the state the program was actually in when Levy Smith was hired. So Tim Beckman was fired right before the 2015 season started, a week before the season started, because of a player abuse scandal of forcing players to play with injuries. Sort of, it was just a mess. And plus, we were just happy enough to fire him anyways because Tim Beckman's a doofus. But <laughs> <laughs> we and then Bill Cubitt takes over. But during this, over the course of the season, Illinois goes five and seven. Nothing too great, nothing too bad, though. But at, during the same process of this, Mike, athletic director Mike Thomas loses his job, and the chancellor of the university loses her job from an unrelated scandal to athletics, but she's still not in place. So, because of all that situation, you have an interim chancellor, an interim athletic director. They decided instead of looking nationally to try to get a new coach, they just gave Bill Cubitt a two-year contract. They just took the easy way out of, well, since everyone's an interim, we can't really hire anybody, blah, da, 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 da. And it was sort of cowardly. And the quote that sums it up is the then athletic di- interim athletic director said, this is not ideal, but for now, it won't put a dagger into the heart of the program. And unfortunately, it did put a dagger into the heart of the program because – then in February of 2016, Josh Whitman was hired as athletic director, and his first move was to fire Bill Cubitt and hire Lovey Smith. So Lovey Smith was actually hired late in the process and was able to have his own spring ball and inherited a team that was just so devoid of talent because of the Tim Beckman era and the one year of the Bill Cubitt era that just destroyed recruiting. So this is a job that no one could have come in and be successful at this point. You couldn't have hired James Franklin. Couldn't have come into Illinois in 2016 when Lovey Smith did and turned this into a winner. So, because of that and the commitment to the rebuild, Lovey Smith's probably safe. But I will say, 2019 will be year four or five of his contract, and everyone knows you can't recruit on a one-year deal. So it's basically the final year because Illinois will be in a we have to extend him situation or we have to fire him situation. So 2019. The way it's developing is looking like it might be you need to make a bowl game or you're going to be fired type of season. 
So the job security for right now, this season's probably safe, but next year it's going to be red hot. Interesting. Okay. And uh, looking at this year again, uh, starting on the offensive side of the ball, we were talking a little bit before the podcast and I was laughing pretty hard because uh, as Penn State fans who suffered through Illinois' 16-14 win over the Nittany Lions – uh, in 2014, might remember, uh, Mikey Dudek is still here. Uh, love, love that guy. Um, I, he, I've been out of, I graduated college in 2014. Uh, and then five months after I graduated, Mikey Dudek played a football game against Penn State. So I still can't fathom that he's there. Uh, but kind of beyond him, uh, when I'm looking at this Illinois team, uh, looking at the numbers they put up last year, the name that jumps off the page to me uh, is Mike Epstein, averaged about six mm-hmm. yards per carry. He looks like he might be good, but it sounds like to me so much of the, so many of the questions around Illinois revolve around who's going to be the guy to keep defenses honest in the passing game to maybe open up a little space for Epstein. Is that probably fair? Yeah. So a huge question is who's going to be quarterback and. Also, the offensive line, because the offensive lines had four freshmen start last year, and those four freshmen will now, one of them will probably be suspended. Larry Boyd's reported to possibly be suspended for the entire season, so three of them will be sophomores. And the other two stars, one's a senior, Nick Allegretti, solid, great player. Uh, Kendrick Green is moving from defensive line to offensive line now, and he's probably going to be a starter as a redshirt freshman. So... You have one really experienced, solid offensive lineman and four sort of slightly experienced, but that's still an offensive line you don't have much confidence in. And when you have questions at offensive line and quarterback, everything else you have around it, it's hard to get that to work. You need that stability up the middle to have a good offense. And so we'll have to see what happens with quarterback. I think A.J. Bush will win it. I think A.J. Bush will be fine. One thing to remember with this Rich Rod, Regis style of offense that Rod Smith will bring in is that Running the balls at Paramount, they at Arizona the last three years, it was about a 45 to 28 split on p- runs versus passes. They run the ball. All things being equal, Rod Smith wants to run the football. And it's out of the shotgun, out of the spread, as we've seen with the West Virginia Steve Slayton days and Pat White days and the Nard Robinson of Michigan. That That's what the offense is built on. But also, you still need, like you said, keep people honest, be able to throw a bit downfield, be able to throw those screen passes. But yeah, it's at running back and wide receiver, there's actually plenty of options to potentially use. Mike Epstein, as you mentioned, I think he's a really solid running back. He's coming off a broken foot, but should still be fine. You know, good speed, good toughness. They also have Reggie Corbin and Ravon Bonner, Dre Brown, who are all experienced backups at running back. Ricky Smalling and Lou Dorsey, uh, wide receiver and tight end, were very promising as freshmen, could be very explosive. And at wide receiver, they also have some other good speed threats. I think that there's weapons that could be used and could help move this move the ball, but you have to have the offensive line and quarterback work before any of that other stuff can really be at its most effective. Interesting. And then looking at the other side of the ball, uh, when you think Lovey Smith, you think defense. You think of mm-hmm. a defense that it's going to be really good. I mean, he was able to ride a defense uh, all the way to making the Super Bowl with, you know, not exactly the most dynamic quarterback in the history of the NFL in Rex Grossman in an offense that, you know, run the ball, play, run the ball on offense, play defense so that you aren't getting into shootouts. 
is that sort of the expectation this year and who are kind of the players to look out for as Illinois football, uh, you know, tries to get that Lovey Smith defense in there that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So with a little bit of change in offense, just really with the strategy. So Rod Smith's a very up-tempo fast. We're going to go fast, quick as possible offense. Before I would have said that Lovey Smith was definitely on the track of building a new Chicago bears of college football was his ideal plan. Like, Virginia Tech, like that was the ideal. Like you know, we're going to play solid defense. We're going to be conservative off offense, but we're going to win more than we lose because of that. But at the same time, with that change in offense, I think that might change the strategy just a little bit with a little bit more aggressive style on offense. Maybe he'll turn up the aggressiveness a little on defense, but it's still going to be largely zone, not a lot of blitzing, and a lot of make. We're going to tackle well in the open field and try to force some turnovers. That's what Levy Smith has done since he was defensive coordinator at Tampa Bay. And I don't think it's going to change too much, but it'll be interesting to see if he does dial it up a little. But the defense has a lot more talent than the offense, but again, a lot of it's young. Bobby Roundtree is a really, really good young defensive end. Bennett Williams, as a safety, was a freshman All-American, has everything you want in a safety. He was a two-star recruit, so they really found a gem there. Nate Hobbs and Tony Adams are pretty good freshman corners last year, should really take a step up this year. Uh, they lost Trey Watson at linebacker, which does hurt a lot. He went to Maryland as a grad transfer. But Delshawn Phillips is a solid guy. There's some okay-ish options around him, but let's we'll see how that develops. But a defensive line, the defensive line is actually building a quite decent deal of depth. Besides Bobby Roundtree, there's also Isaiah Gay, Tamir Milan, and then they just brought in two defensive tackles that were four-star recruits in the class of 2018, and they brought in Calvin Avery, a four-star defensive tackle, and Virtus Brown, a four-star defensive tackle as well. So they're building very good depth along that defensive line to where potentially 2019, 2020, this could actually be a very scary unit. And then if you can get some good tackling behind it at linebacker and keep developing the secondary, that could be a very good unit. But again, this year... Young maybe doesn't have quite the athleticism you want. Last year, they did struggle with a little bit of the speed plays. They, against drag route, simple drag routes and stretch runs to the outside. But I think they could take a step up this year. But last year, they're 89th in defensive S&P plus metrics. And that's still below average. But if they could... I think they could step up to maybe be an average defense this year in numbers and maybe in actuality be an above average defense that struggles a bit because of the offense around them doesn't do them any favors. But uh, it's just this year, I think it's the story on offense and defense for Illinois. It's just this is not the year. It's just they're too young, not experienced enough, just not good enough yet. So this year is sort of a – if I could press a button – that would sim to 2019, and I just, like, oh, we went 2-10, and 3-9? Cool. Like, I'd do it. Like, <laughs> there's just, <laughs> there's really not much, it's really hard to draw a picture to a bowl game this year. Interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, I'm not going to ask you to predict uh, the Illinois-Penn State game, partly because uh, we're not doing that right now, and also because uh, Friday night road Big Ten games between a ranked team and an unranked team Always have the potential to get very, very, very weird. Well, I can just say this really quick, because that game really scares me, just from a 
from Penn State. So some teams we play last year. Ohio State was up thirty-five nothing against us last year in the first quarter, but only won forty-five to fourteen or whatever because they called the dog like they called the dogs off. It wasn't a big deal. We won the game. But I feel Penn State, and I don't know if you could answer this, but I feel like there's still some animosity towards the Tim Beckman was trying to recruit oh, players a bit. thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I think- and I think Penn State, if given the chance. They'll run it up as much as they – if Penn State could score 80 points, they'd score 80 points, I, I, I feel like. I don't know if there's animosity uh, too ter- – I mean, there's certainly among fans. I don't know about the team just because uh, that was – Over was the four old, years. Yeah, yeah, and James Franklin wasn't here for that, so he wasn't having to recruit against Tim Beckman. But, I mean, Penn State did, you know, whip the hell out of Maryland last year. So perhaps that's uh, – perhaps they'll keep it up. Although, yeah – actually, you know what? They probably won't because after – after they play Illinois, that's the Ohio State game. So my guess, is oh, gonna, so my guess is they're going to try and get a nice little cushion and then put the second. Trace McSorley will be pulled early. So. Yeah, if, <laughs> I, if if James Franklin has its way, Trace is not playing at, in the second half. But we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Uh, when it comes to Illinois, okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> when it comes what? to Illinois this season, what's the best case scenario? What's the worst case scenario? And what do you think ends up happening? Uh, whether it's one of those or whether it's somewhere in the middle. So uh, I'd say best case scenario, we'll start with that. <laughs> uh, I think it would be that it's hard to measure in terms of wins, but I think it would be the offense identity is firmly established and that this system shows a lot of promise. Some of the young players continue to improve. Illinois maybe finds that Cam Thomas has improved a lot or maybe one of the three freshman quarterbacks have come in have done well. Mike Epstein, Ricky Smalling, Lou Dorsey all take a step up in their sophomore seasons. We start the offensive line starts to solidify a little bit, and it just you start to realize the foundations of a good offense. And on on defense, similar things. Players take a step up. It really starts to look like, hey, we're starting to develop the core of our football team, and maybe you get to around four or five wins, four maybe more realistic and try to help continue to get recruiting momentum and just show that you're making progress. Worst case scenario is they go anywhere from two to zero wins. Cause this is a team that just sadly doesn't have the ability to say we're playing Western Illinois at home. That's a sure win. Western Illinois made the FCS playoffs last year. This is a team that's solid. And if Illinois struggles on offense with a bunch of young players and can't put up points, they can lose that. And that's the same with Kent State. It's just a team that it's just not there yet. And it could turn sour very, very quickly. And if they lose those, any of those first two, that's when it's going to start being, it might just be time to quit on Lovey Smiths. But that's the worst case. I think realistically, they'll win the first two. It won't be exciting. It won't be pretty. The offense might show some good, progress in some games but still games against Penn State and Wisconsin are going to be we're clearly outmatched we're clearly just not at the level to play those teams competitively but maybe they pick up a Big Ten win against Minnesota Purdue that lost a lot of defensive starters or Rutgers just pick up an ugly one or even Maryland go three and nine but maybe still bring in some decent recruiting recruiting's gone a little bit better for Illinois they have a some momentum going with especially in the St. Louis area with new coach Corey Patterson. But I say that's realistic as three and nine, maybe two and 10. If you can't find a win in the big 10, 
but it's just a building year. So realistically, set up the offense, get your footing under you, continue to have the young players improve on both sides of the ball, and look to 2019 to be the year that you return to a bowl game. Brandon, if uh, our listeners would like to read your stuff, where can they find you on social media? Where can they find you on the internet? All that. So you can find me on social media at bberk 3 and read all my articles on the champagneroom.com or preview in Illinois football and basketball, which, hey, it's not going good in that right now, but at least there's somebody to write some jokes about it and <laughs> let people know what's going on. Yeah, if that's not the best uh, best part point to end a podcast, I don't know what is. So, Brandon, thank you very much for coming on, man. We appreciate the time. So, next up on our preview podcast, uh, we decided to head over to our sister site, Eleven Warriors, and get our pal Kevin Harrish. Uh, Kevin, how uh, nice and quiet and relaxing has your offseason been, buddy? Oh, you know, it's just been great, you know. Um, <laughs> Haven't, haven't really been doing much, just kind of relaxing, waiting for football season to start. Yeah, no news out of Columbus or anything like that that has uh, stopped the entire program dead in its tracks and made your job as someone who reports on it a little more difficult. So that's always a fun thing to happen. Uh, yeah, of course, obviously, uh, we, we're not going to go in depth or anything like that on what's happening at Ohio State with Urban Meyer and with Zach Smith. Uh, but, Kevin, I do want to ask you, uh, what do you think ends up happening? Do you think Urban Meyer uh, come week one is going to be the coach? Do you think he's going to be suspended? Or do you think Ohio State is going to be put in the unten- a situation that gets to be untenable and they have to part ways with him? Yeah, I don't, I don't know at this point if I would expect him to be fired. He, uh, the, basically what they're looking at right now is, is there's two conflicting statements basically um you know it at big 10 media days he said that he was unaware of anything that happened in 2015 and then he put out a statement shortly after saying he was in fact aware and not only was he aware he reported them so one of those things is just not true uh so my thinking is that in my personal view it's probably more likely that the um, media day performance was inaccurate was more inaccurate than the statement that he released under pressure. Um, so without being on that investigative board that's that's investigating him right now, I imagine that if he did know anything and he says that he reported it, that's a pretty uh, strong claim to make if there's no evidence to back that up. So my hunch is that they're going to find that he did report it. And then it's basically going to come down to, okay, well, then why did you say what you said at media day? And uh, if they determine that he lied to the media, there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, well, it's not a big deal to lie to the media. Well, when you're probably the the second highest paid public employee in the country, it kind of is a big deal to lie to the public. So I can't really imagine there would be absolutely no punishment for that. So where I'm kind of arriving at is he might have a couple game suspension for misspeaking or lying at media day. And in the uh, interim, Ryan Day is acting as the Buckeyes head coach, ostensibly because if they decided that they were going to make Kevin Wilson or Greg Schiano the head coach, it would just be a nightmare for everyone in Columbus. But uh, can you just real quick give us a little bit of background on Ryan Day and why uh, – 
in the event this becomes a Luke Fickle type situation, Ohio State's not going to have a six and six season. They there are reasons for optimism that this team is still going to be good under the tutelage of the thirty nine year old. Yeah, I think as soon as I I first encountered Ryan Day and saw him um, uh, really work with players and um, you know got got the chance to talk to him about really. Uh, Ohio State's offense and stuff like that, I got the impression that this dude's going to be a head coach sooner or later. Um, I kind of got the impression that he was maybe even being groomed by Meyer to be his successor at Ohio State. And I really got that impression when instead of uh, reportedly going to other schools where he had head coaching offers, he chose to stay at Ohio State for a large raise and be a coordinator. Um, And so... I was not shocked at all, um, regardless of the scandals between uh, scandals or whatever the 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 un ungreat past of uh, Greg Schiano and Kevin Wilson that could have created a PR nightmare. Regardless of that, I think Ryan Day was a great choice to be the interim head coach, and I think he would be a great choice to be a uh, anybody's head coach in the future. Um, I think he's a extremely bright offensive mind and. Um, I think there were a lot of people last year that assumed that um, Kevin Wilson was the mastermind behind Ohio State's offense. And honestly, from talking to Ryan Day and looking at how Ohio State's offense changed, Ryan Day is Ohio State's offensive coordinator and was last year. Um, And I I just I think he's an incredible coach. Um, And I don't think Ohio State schematically would miss a beat with Ryan Day's uh, is the head coach, especially this season. I think, um, I think there's like, there's a lot of, I, I, I don't even remember who wrote it, but some, somebody wrote a piece. I think it was with the, probably not a top 10 team without urban Meyer. Like, what, what do you think urban Meyer does? Like he's not out there like teaching <laughs> defensive line technique or anything like that. Like, you know, I, I think for the long term well being of the program, urban Meyer, like not being with the team is going to be, disastrous yeah and it's it's not going to have great results but like as far as this season like there's not a whole lot he does at this point to like get this team ready to play like he's got million dollar assistance to like get this i i, I don't know I, i'm just not not buying the whole like this is going to be a six and six situation this ohio state's signed the in the past two recruiting cycles the best two recruiting classes in its history and I don't know. I'm I'm just not buying that um, it's going to be a Luke Fickle type situation. I think it'll look more like uh, what happened at Oklahoma after Bob Stoops stepped down. And you mention uh, talent in the program. You mention uh, what is uh, the shirt that Eleven Warriors has about uh, not having backups but having more starters, something like that. Yeah, yeah, well, that's it. The thing with Ohio State is that it lost some dudes from last year's team. Uh, we're starting on the offensive side of the ball, and of course, the most notable example of that is at quarterback. After 35 years of playing college football, JT Barrett is gone, but in his place steps Dwayne Haskins. Uh, Penn State fans are very, very familiar with him from uh, his time as a recruit when the Nittany Lions were fighting to try and get him to come to State College. Redshirt sophomore, impressed in his time on the field, is the expectation that the offense is going to change at all or take any kind of step back or possibly step forward now that Haskins is in for JT Barrett? I think there's, it, it would be almost impossible for it to not change a little bit. 
especially since um, JT Barrett was sort of Urban Meyer's, I guess, his crutch. Um, when the game was close, he had JT Barrett run the ball a lot, uh, did a lot of read option stuff. And um, while Dwayne Haskins can run, I don't want to say that he's not com- he's completely immobile. Um, he can run. That's not really his bread and butter. Um, so I imagine the offense will change a little bit in that um, instead of maybe read option stuff, you'll see more RPO heavy, um, you know, relying on the running back for the uh, the running game too. But but on that same end, um, Ohio State, Urban Meyer, and Ryan Day both love the inherent numbers advantage of a quarterback run. So if you know if Dwayne Haskins is sitting back there in shotgun and there's a box advantage. He, he's going to run like he's he's going to take the, the free three yards and um, I, I think Buckeye fans are going to lament that a little bit because they kind of hate the quarterback run in Columbus um, <laughs> but but they've already said that like Dwayne Haskins is going to run it's 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 going to happen um, but I, I think what you might see is uh, based on receiver skill set and Dwayne Haskins skill set um, you might see them attack the uh the outside of the field a little more in the passing game. Um, you know, in, in the past, Ohio State's receivers and JT Barrett, their strength has been across the middle of the field, um, whereas I think Ohio State has the personnel at both quarterback and receiver to kind of attack the sidelines a little more this year in the passing game. And to be 100% clear, like, this is Haskins' job. Like, there's no concern of Tate Martell stepping in during camp and taking it from him, nothing like that? Or No, no. All right. <laughs> um, ur- urban, urban he's he likes to play this game where he doesn't make definitive statements and i don't understand why he does that because like Dwayne haskins is so clearly the starting quarterback i i i think part of it might be to just keep tate martell engaged and uh i i no there's there's no way tate martell is the starting quarterback come september well the good news is no matter who is uh lining up at quarterback the person who is going to be next to him in Ohio State's backfield is going to be a freak of nature. Whether it's J.K. Dobbins or whether it's the slightly less freaky but still really, really good Mike Weber is the expectation that through the first couple of games of the year, because, you know, they have a game against TCU, they have, of course, their first road game of the season is at Penn State. Uh, J.K. Dobbins and Mike Weber are going to be the guys who determine just how good this offense is as Haskins gets uh, gets used to life as a starting quarterback in college football. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, if you ask Ohio State fans, like they're expecting Dwayne Haskins to come in and light the world on fire as a, you know, as a as a first year starter, and you know, I, I think there's definitely going to be moments where he looks like a first year starter, and um, there's there's really limited film on him last year, but he definitely made some um, some you know, scary throws. Uh, he had one pretty bad pick six. Um, you know, tr- he, he has a lot of confidence and tries to fit balls into really tight windows. And that's going to lead to some mistakes. And I think um, when you've got guys like J.K. Dobbins and Mike Weber, they're going to be sort of that security blanket. And I, I think Ohio State will ride that. I think they got into trouble and, um, you know, people complained about it a lot in 2015 with not doing that enough with Ezekiel Elliott and it maybe even cost him a chance to play for a national title against Michigan state. But, um, I, I think this year, yeah, we'll go to JK Dobbins and Mike Weber and it. It's really helpful that there's two of them because like you're not even, you're not even super worried about, um, one of them, you know, kind of taking too many hits or 
having too much of a workload. You just kind of, you know, you can sub them in, sub them out, just you know, alternate who gets carries. And then, of course, there is Paris Campbell, who, as we all know, every time he touches the football, he has the potential to go 95 yards and score a touchdown. So Ohio State has that going for them as well. But in the event that they have to run the ball and they're going to be a very run-heavy team, uh, usually when the team is leaning on the running game so ter- so much, that's because they know they, uh, they they know their defense is going to need one either need breaks or two. Uh, they're just going to smother the other team. And the good news for Ohio State is that this defense, despite the fact that it lost a whole bunch of bodies. Um, Kevin, you could speak to this, of course, better than me, but it seems like the expectation in Ohio State is that, sure, some dude's left, but uh, it, this this everything on this defense is still going to be scary good. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Ohio State had three defensive ends drafted in uh, – in the uh, this most recent NFL draft, and you know the pair that they have right now is arguably better at the top, um, at least higher higher recruited. Um, the guys that they uh, that they just that just left were not not low recruited guys. It's you know it's Ohio State. We're still talking like high high four star guys, um, but you know you've got Joey Bosa and Chase Young, and both of them. Or sorry, not Joey Bosa. <laughs> Nick Nick Bosa. They all blend together after. It's the the same same. thing. (laughs) Nick Bosa and Chase Young, and they're both like top two players at their position coming out of high school, and uh, they're lining up across from each other, and that's just that's just not fair. And then you've got uh, Draymond Jones at the defensive tackle spot, who I firmly believe will be a first round pick at the end of the year. And then you've got a guy named BB Landers um, inside of him too. And he's one of the, he's a little quick twitch guy. He's not like physically impressive. He's pretty short, but he's a quick twitch disruptor. And um, that defensive line is going to be absolutely stacked, especially at the top. They might not have the depth that they had last year when they were just kind of throwing like four guys there. And uh, they might have each played like a quarter of a game, but um, they're not going to have the depth, but the talent at the top is going to be really good. Um, and, you know, it's the, the rest of it is honestly kind of still in flux. Um, Ohio State, technically with tough Borland hurt, has to find three starting linebackers. Um, they technically have they have Kendall Sheffield at corner, and he's going to be a starter. Um, Damon Arnett's been, you know, he's he's probably going to be a starter. He's, you know, contributed for three years, and um, they've got a ton of young players after that. And uh, it's it safety. They still don't know who's going to start opposite of Jordan Fuller, who's by far like he's he's a strong, like a a strength of the unit or of the uh, defensive unit. Um, and he's going to start, but so like, it's kind of weird because you don't really know who's going to start it like four, maybe five positions on the team, but you're still looking at this as maybe the strength of the team. It's kind of one of those, like, it doesn't really matter who's going to start because they're going to be good is at least the expectation in Columbus. And one final thing that I find just so interesting about this Ohio State team is that it has that big, it has a pretty decent test uh, during its third week of the season. But other than that, Oregon State is not especially good. Rutgers not especially good. Tulane not especially good. That game against Penn State, I don't want to say it is a, uh, it's necessarily a, 
uh, Big Ten uh, title game, play-in game, because, you know, a lot of football has to be played after that. Uh, Ohio State has to go to uh, Michigan State. Penn State has to go to Ann Arbor. All that stuff. But it seems to me like Ohio State has to be, and Penn State as well, have to be ready for week five. Like, they both should enter that game uh, 4-0, but whomever wins that game is going to have the inside track at winning the Big Ten East, depending on uh, a few things happening in Ann Arbor and East Lansing. So looking at just the Penn State game, what are the things that Ohio State has to have ironed out by that point? And what are the things that you think, you know, once Penn, once it goes to Penn State, like, where the do you expect there to still be some question marks, or do you think Ohio State's still going to have it basically uh, figured out by then? I think the biggest thing for me is linebackers heading into Penn State, um, because like I said, Ohio State doesn't really have starting linebackers right now. There's about six guys that could fill those three positions, seven if you count um, the injured starter of Tough Borland who will be back maybe by Penn State. Uh, uh, he looked good in practice today and was moving, but um, he had an Achilles injury, so it's, you don't know how long that's going to take. But linebackers to me is particularly interesting because Penn State um, runs a really RPO-heavy offense, and I think um, that's going to be the key test for uh, Ohio State's linebackers is um, you know discipline in that game. and I think they did decently well. Uh, last last year, um, they did not do well against Oklahoma at the beginning of the year, um, and those were veteran guys too. Like those were those were guys who uh, had started for multiple years. You had Jerome Baker, Chris Worley. Like they they were ready for it. And this year, you're going to have inexperienced guys who've um, never really played in this situation. So I think that's the key for me. And unfortunately for Ohio State, I don't I don't really know if they're going to. Um, get a test in that. I guess, I guess Rutgers runs a, a pretty similar offense. Calm down. Um, <laughs> I mean, I mean, schematically it's pretty similar and, uh, and TCU will probably do, uh, do some things like, like that too. But, um, it, it is going to kind of be a, a baptism by fire for the, the young linebackers there and, uh, the guys in the secondary too. But, um, you know, Ohio State's strength is always the defensive line, so they're probably just going to try to lean on that for that game, and it usually works. So yeah, we'll, I was, was going to say we'll last see. year that uh, that formula worked out pretty well for them uh, against uh, the Nittany Lions, but New Year, all that, and then of course we have no idea who's going to be coaching Ohio State at that point, so that probably seems like kind of a big deal. Um, <laughs> real quick, what is just this season? What is the best case scenario for Ohio State? What is the worst case scenario for Ohio State? And what are you leaning towards as kind of just your general feeling of what we can expect out of this Buckeye team? So I, I think best case scenario is um, Dwayne Haskins is everything that Ohio State fans seem to think that he is. Um, you know, it's he, he, he obviously led that comeback against Michigan. He made one really good throw in that game. Um, and, but there's just really limited, limited tape on him. Um, and so I, I think best case scenario is he comes in and he's the, the pocket passer, like, um, you know, lighted up quarterback that everyone expects him to be. Ohio State's passing game looks, you know, better than it has in years. And um, they, you know, go on to um, – 
when what is honestly a, a pretty pretty easy at least home schedule um and, and you've got you've got the two challenges of Penn State and Michigan State and if they can win you know two of the three against Penn State Michigan State and Michigan uh I I, I think that's probably the best case scenario you're you're looking at a uh, a possible chance for a um for a uh, Big Ten title and a, a college football playoff appearance and um I, I guess like it's kind of gotten to the point where best case scenario is also like the expectation at Ohio State now. So it's it's kind of weird to talk about best case scenario because it's also like what the commenters have just been assuming mm. that is going to happen the past like six months. But um, I, I think worst case scenario is Dwayne Haskins comes in and plays like a redshirt freshman that's never really played before. And um, he has mistakes and costs the team games. Um or at least makes things close, and uh, Ohio State has to maybe even consider other options at quarterback because I think, um, you know, it, it's going to be hard, especially with Meyer waffling all all during the off season. That oh, it's still a battle. Like Tate Martell can still pull away um, to have him sitting on the bench if the offense isn't going well, and especially um, since whenever the offense didn't go well beforehand they kind of went to the quarterback run. And so Tate Martell on the bench, they might try to do that. I don't know. But I, I think worst case scenario is um, Ohio State loses a couple games. And absolute worst case scenario is Urban Myers fired. And um, on top of that, Ohio State starts losing games. So it's not even like that there's a, there's a, um, a future there or anything like that. But uh, there, there's still a ton up in the air as far as the Urban Meyer situation. But um I don't know. I, I think the most likely scenario is that Dwayne Haskins comes in as, and is human, but Ohio State's talented enough across the board that it's it's it kind of makes the quarterback transition a lot easier. And um, I, I think Ohio State will win no no with even with or without Urban Meyer. I think they'll win no fewer than ten games. Um, you know, eleven and one, ten and two. Uh, it's it's going to matter whether they go. Um, two and three against the big three in the east or um or uh you know or one and three um i think they'll win one at least so um i i think that's realistic is 10 and 2 11 and 1 um a loss to penn state michigan state or michigan so kevin uh let us know uh where we can find you find your stuff and you have a you have a new role over at 11 Warriors thanks to, and this is a very 2018 sentence, a blogger turned potential politician. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm taking over for, uh, for old DJ Burns over at, at 11 Warriors. Um, he is uh, running for Ohio um, State House this, this fall, and so he, he dropped all his work on my desk. And so I am, uh, I am now... Um, I am now DJ Burns for for this fall, but uh, it, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Um, just covering the team full time. Um, first time. I mean, I mean, I've been with Eleven Warriors for three years, but now I'm now I'm full time. So it's it's a little different, but feels a lot the same. So uh, it'll it'll be a fun ride. Buckeye football is always fun, regardless of uh, you know coaching carousels and st- and such. So um, just. They just had to go and make it way more interesting for me uh, my first couple weeks. (laughs) Amen, brother. Kevin Harris, thank you very much for coming on. Next up, we're going to be talking uh, about Michigan State, so uh, keep it there. And one last time, Kevin, thank you very much, my man.
All right, our final uh, interview for our uh, podcast series, we're breaking down Penn State's schedule. We went over to our pal Chris Vanini from The Athletic. And Chris, uh, it's not WrestleMania, but I hope you're uh, excited to talk about what we got going on this season in Michigan State football. Yeah, you know, I understand why you saved the biggest rival for last. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm still, as I know for a fact you are, I, I still am upset that the last uh, conference regular season game that Penn State has, and my, I, again, I know you're the same way that Michigan State has, doesn't end with someone lifting up this gigantic uh, trophy with its own gravitational pulse. So, wait, why is Rutgers last in Michigan State's schedule? Like, is that, is that the Big Ten trying to make that into a thing? Or is that just Ohio State has Michigan, Penn State has Maryland, which are they trying to make into a thing, and then these are just the last two teams that are standing? I don't think it's making it a okay. thing. I, I haven't looked at the future schedules in a while, but I don't think Rutgers is the last game every year. But I, I guess I could be wrong, but I don't think that's the case. As far as I know, they're not making it a thing. Okay, good. Yeah, because they were the last game last year, and... Right. If memory serves, like Rutgers, they might have gotten one touchdown on Penn State, and they might have done a little something against. No, because they got blown out by Ohio State. They got blown out by Penn State. They got blown out by uh, Michigan, and I think Michigan State might have been the one touchdown they scored against the t- teams that previously gained like four and a half miles worth of yards on them. Yeah, but something okay. stupid like that. Look, looks like it, Rutgers is not always the last game. Okay. Either. Schedule, so, the yeah. the Big Ten is not trying to uh, get those uh, famously chilly towards one another markets of Piscataway, New Jersey, and East Lansing pitted against one another. That's good. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about Michigan State football. Um, they were a bit of a surprise last year. Not in that they were uh, not that they were a good football team because we all kind of expect that out of Michigan State. But because the year before, they were just not very good. And they really, really struggled uh, their way to a 3-9 and nine record. A lot of chatter around the program. They come out last year, beat Michigan and Ann Arbor, beat Penn State in the weirdest football game of the year. <laughs> and now Michigan State's coming into this year with a ton of hype, possibly some Big Ten East championship aspirations. So what thing or things happen in 2017 that made it so it wasn't a repeat of the year before? And how does Michigan State make sure that momentum carries into 2018? Yeah, it has been a very strange two years for the program to to go to 3-9 and nine in 2016, which was by far the worst team of D'Antonio's era since he started in 2007. They had, they'd never even won fewer than six games. They'd made a bowl game every year and then the bottom falls out at, at three and nine. And then not only last year are they coming off of three and nine, but they're one of the least experienced teams in the country last year. It was it was they had lost a number of seniors from the year before too. So as 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 cheesy as it might be to say it was a culture change that got things back on track, I think it really was because coming off of 2016, there were some players involved in some legal issues, a number of players booted off the team. Um, And then going into 2017, it seemed like the leadership of the team got back on track to what it normally is, that divisions within the team uh, seemed to be 
solved. And then they also went out and won, you know, a number of close games. They won five Big Ten games by uh, one possession. Uh, they, they also lost a triple overtime game at Northwestern. And they just seem to always make the clutch play. Like their overall team numbers were not all that great, but when it got down to it in the fourth quarter, they they just always, Brian Lewerke, the quarterback, just made a play. The defense got a stop when it needed to. And in the year before 2016, things would just snowball. It just it, they'd never be able to recover from it. So now they come into this year with 19 returning starters because they were full of sophomores last year. And yeah, and now that the 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 expectation is back to what it had been the previous five six years, and that's contending for the Big Ten. And as I'm looking at them. Uh, through Bill Conley's preview series, it says that uh, Michigan State is returning 92% of its production, 92% on offense, 91% on defense. Is the expectation that last year's team uh, is able to build on what it did and take a step forward? Or is there kind of a belief that like this, you know, a 9-3 and team with a 7-2 and mark and, you know, struggling against uh, Ohio State, struggling against Notre Dame, two elite programs – like that might be what we can expect out of this team, or is it? You know, you're bringing 92 percent back. You won nine games last year. You have to be able to uh, not lose 48 to three in Columbus. Well, I, I think the the Ohio State game is, was uh, that was that was a weird game, but I, you know, I, this is not a team that's stacked with NFL prospects. Uh, they're they're full of very very good or very good uh, college level players. So when you looked at the 2013 team that won the Rose Bowl, that that team turned out to be full of guys who made to the NFL. The entire receiving core, I think, is, is made the NFL. Connor Cook, bunch of guys on defense. Uh, at this point with this team, now maybe because they were only sophomores last year maybe this year we'll start to see it but there aren't a ton of guys on this team right now where I think they're among the most talented teams in the country they're not as they're probably not as they don't have as many prospects as Ohio State or as Penn State so when it comes to setting expectations I think contending for the Big Ten is the expectation I don't think winning the Big Ten is the expectation interesting and one thing that uh as we're looking at the 2018 team. One thing that really impressed me last year was something that you mentioned, like this Michigan state team is just so solid and so good at coming up big when it has to. And like you mentioned, no one does that more than Brian Lewerke. You look at his numbers, completed 59% of his passes, 20 touchdowns, seven interceptions. Those aren't world beater numbers, but it also seems like Michigan state has a quarterback who is going to do exactly what he has to do, which when Michigan State has that, that's when their offense, no matter how, uh, you know, a lack of explosiveness, a lack of talent, this offense is going to be able to be in every game because it has such a steady hand under center. Yeah, he's, he's a weird, he's a fascinating guy to just kind of evaluate because even in 2016, he played a little bit and... Again, this is going to sound cheesy because I was just talking about culture and cliches and all that stuff, but he just seems to have it in terms of getting the job done. You saw it a little bit in 2016 
Then he breaks his leg against Michigan and loses out uh, on a chance to gain some valuable reps the rest of the year. And he comes into last year. People don't really know much about him, but and his numbers weren't great. He had some games where his completion percentage was brutal, but when he needed to make the play, they made it. it the third, I don't remember what the numbers are, but the third down improvement on both sides of the ball from 2016 to 2017 was just insane how much better they got on third downs. And he can run, he can throw. He doesn't have a super strong arm, but he always seems to uh, find the right guy. And he did have a problem with fumbling last year a little bit. Turnovers were a little bit of a, little bit of a problem. But he reminds me so much of Connor Cook in that he just he shakes bad plays off. Like Connor Cook would always come back from a bad turnover with a touchdown drive or something like that. And you get the same sense from Lewerke. Nothing ever snowballs on him. He's able to, to brush things off. He's able to brush a playoff and just keep going forward. And that's what you saw last year, even in games that he did not play well, like Iowa or Indiana uh, or, or Michigan. He's able to do just enough in the fourth quarter to run the clock out or to get a final touchdown driver to, or to put a game out of reach. Uh, he just seems to make the play when you need him to. Then uh, kind of beyond him, like we mentioned, a lot of guys coming back from last year, you look at their depth chart, it's a lot of guys with senior, with junior, with red shirts, whatever next to their name. The guy that has me so interested, just because he has seemingly been there forever, is LJ Scott. And when Michigan State has been at its best, that team has been able to run the ball, been able to control the clock, and get it so Lewerke or Connor Cook... Uh, Kirk Cousins, whomever is under center, they're being tasked with, you have to get us four yards through the air on third down. Is LJ Scott, like, is he expected to kind of take a step forward this year? Because he's always seemed to be a very solid running back who is who he is. And if he's not able to do that, are they going to want to get some other guys in there, the Madre Londons and the sorts of uh, players like that? So he... I mentioned that the team doesn't have a lot of NFL prospects. I think LJ Scott is an NFL caliber uh, talent. Biggest problem with him, he's been benched a few times over the years. He just has so much trouble fumbling the ball. And a lot of people thought he would leave early for the NFL because, you know, obviously running backs don't have a lot of mileage, get what you can. But he decided to come back and with Madre London subsequently transferring to uh, Tennessee, Scott is now the only experienced running back they have. So he will be the guy getting the bulk of the carries. And may maybe that was a factor in him deciding to come back because it was a problem over, over his three years. The coaches have always, they've had like three, two, three running backs, always solid backs. And the coaches always say they want to go the hot hand, but they never do it. Like a running back, Scott or Gerald Holmes would have, a solid series, and then the next offensive series was a new running back in, and it was a lot of fans were frustrated by it because they never seemed to actually be riding the hot hand. Now, no matter what, my guess is that LJ Scott is going to be the guy getting the bulk of those carries, and if he holds onto the ball, that's that's uh, good news for Spartans because he is, I think, a really really talented back, a guy who chose Michigan State over Ohio State coming out of out of um, out of uh, high school, and probably one of his most notable performances was 
Ohio State game his freshman year when MSU went into Columbus and won, and he was the the, the lead back on uh, I think on the final field goal winning drive. And uh, one, you keep saying that you know the NFL talent thing, but I think every Penn State fan who uh, suffered through last year's game thinks that Felton Davis is going to be the best wide receiver in the history of the National Football League. <laughs> Neither here nor there. Uh, I want to move to the defensive side of the ball really quickly. Uh, Michigan State's defense last year for uh, how, uh, you know, for how not great it was in 2016 really took a step forward with last year to get back and remind people of what Michigan State's defense should be. Uh, It bent at times, didn't break a lot of times. What is it with Michigan State's defense that, they kind of reverted to, well, I don't want to say reverted to last year. Like, what was it with last year's defense that just made it so uh, reminiscent of not Pat Narduzzi's defenses, but they're still being, they're still really, really good on that side of the football? It, it, it was the defensive line. Um, after the 2015 season, they lost a lot of guys on the defensive line. Shalee Calhoun, a number of seniors, but also a number of freshmen or redshirting players were, were kicked off the team for various uh, issues. So the defensive line became incredibly thin. They were not as good stopping the run in 2016 as they were. They only had 11 sacks, which is the third fewest in the country in 2016. So then last year, they jump up to 28 sacks, 50th in the country. They got a lot more sturdy on the line, and that's where it has to start because this defense a lot, a lot of times puts a lot on one-on-one coverage for the defensive backs. And that only works if you're getting pressure and you're stopping the run. And 2016, they didn't do that. 2017, they did. They, they, they were among the, I think they were top 10 rushing defense. And again, they more than doubled the number of sacks they had the previous year. So you look at the defensive line this year, uh, all those guys, uh, most of those guys are back. Uh, Raekwon Williams, nose tackle, really strong player. Kenny Willekes, defensive end, a former walk-on, kind of came out of nowhere to, to be a really solid player. Uh, Mike Panashuk inside, and and there 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 is depth now on this defensive line uh, that there was not in 2016. I think that was a big reason for the defense's struggles. So looking at this Michigan State team, uh, on the whole, you know they come to the, their early season schedule has a few tricky games in there. Uh, we were talking before the podcast. They have a 10:45 Eastern time kick at Arizona State. Going to Indiana always ends up being weird. Ward knows what you're going to get out of Northwestern. They have that early bye uh, during the third week of the season with Penn State against, uh, you know, they're traveling to Happy Valley uh, midway through October. So what is the best case scenario for this Michigan State team? What is the worst case scenario for this Michigan State team? And what are going to be the things that kind of dictate which way the wind ends up blowing in that regard? So they get Michigan and Ohio State at home, which is big, uh, and then they travel to Penn State. I think the best case, I mean, the best case could could be an eleven and one, where maybe the only loss is is at Penn State, or or maybe they win that one but lose to Ohio State, depending on you know how the other teams shake up. I think best case is eleven to one, and you win the division. Worst case, uh, that Penn State game is going to be really really tough. Maybe they lose that. Maybe they lose one or both of the Michigan Ohio State games. Uh, going to Arizona State is, I think, going to be tougher than people think, even though kind of you don't know what to expect from Herm Edwards up down there. 
But the Big Ten does not have a good track record of traveling out to Pac-12 stadiums and performing well. It was not too long ago that Wisconsin went out to Arizona State and lost because they couldn't get a snap off in time to kick a field goal. Uh, so worst case could be, you know, a seven and five type of season possibly. Uh, but I, I think, you know, the 2016 collapse really did come out of nowhere. And I think that has shaken the confidence people have in the consistency of this program. So I'm not going to say, I, I'm not going to say if they don't make a bowl game, it'll be stunning because two years ago we saw them collapse. But I think between seven wins and 11 wins is probably the worst case to best case that you're seeing. Just there's, just there's just too much back. They're too experienced now. Uh, the leadership remains in place. It's, it's hard to see that changing. So I, I think everything is, is back on track. Awesome. Uh, Chris, uh, let us know where we can find uh, some of your stuff, where our uh, where our listeners can follow you, where they could read you, all that sort of thing. Yeah, I'm at The Athletic. Uh, you've probably heard of it at this point, but we've added a, we've added a ton of um, team writers this year. We've got Audrey Snyder doing Penn State coverage. We've got Colton Pouncey doing Mich- Michigan State coverage. Uh, check those guys out. And uh, we got a sale going on, theathletic.com slash CFB expansion. You get 40% off a subscription. Hope you guys uh, do that. Uh, you know, we're, we're coming up on one year since the college football site launched with The Athletic, and things have gone very well, and the feedback's been great, and uh, we hope to do that again this year. And, of course, Chris, the last question that I have to ask you, does Manchester City win the Champions League this year? Uh. Yeah, uh, well, I, I can't we say there I look too much. <laughs> okay, but, so wh- what do you think about um, the Land Grant Trophy this year? Um, I One, I think it's uh, staying in Happy Valley because I think James Franklin, uh, I think now that James Franklin's been here for a while, I think he understands the importance. You think he of, understands it? Well, you know, I, I, I don't, it's not that I think he was like, didn't understand it, but now I think he understands that like, in the eyes of a few of us idiots, the most important thing he could do is win the Land Grant Trophy, yes. Yes, and you know, th- there were rumors that the Land Grant Trophy game was moved off of that last weekend because it was just drawing too much of <laughs> a, too much of the attention away from the other games, and the Michigans and Ohio States were upset uh, that they weren't getting as much attention, so the Big Ten obliged and moved that to the middle of the week, so, you know, got to deal with it. Wisely, uh, yeah. Chris, uh, one last time, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it, and I'm sure we'll talk to you uh, a little bit more this season, especially once uh, the, the, the hotly contested land-grant trophy game rolls around. Sounds good. And that's all for us. Thank you for listening uh, to this edition of Roar Lions Radio. Make sure you uh, follow us on our social media channels, uh, subscribe to all the various podcast channels, and keep an eye out for when we look at the second half of Penn State's 2018 schedule. One more time, thank you for listening to Roar Lions Radio. I'm Bill DeFilippo. Take care, everyone.